Good evening, Garbage listeners. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, July 7th, 2016, and this is episode 33 of Garbage. Yeah. Thank you guys for emailing us this week. We had a lot of feedback, um, a number of things to talk about. You guys inquiring, you guys replying and answering questions, and you guys um, sending in, uh, I guess, tips and tricks, more tips and tricks. So thanks for doing that. Great to hear from you guys, and uh, looking forward to talking about all that stuff. Yeah, so I guess we can start with some of the feedback that we got um, from last week's show about Mutt and things. Yeah, a lot of people excited about Mutt. Um, a couple people were inspired to try it, and that was good. And um, uh, some of the cool things, or one of the cool things that I took away from that was uh, someone emailed us and um, said that they hide the sidebar by default, and they have a, like a, a hot key to show it, which um, prevents you from having artifacts when you're copying and pasting and stuff. So I thought that was cool. Um, and the same kind of thing applies to Tmux as well. Someone kind of noted that uh, Tmux um, has this uh, zoom feature. So you, if you want to like copy paste in Tmux and you have split panes, uh, you can do Control B Z, zoom that window. You can do your copy paste and then Control B Z again, and uh, you don't have the artifacts. So handy little tips and tricks. I didn't know about them. I think they're fantastic. Um, so thanks to the folks who emailed us and told us about that i thought those were useful yeah um yeah i mean i've uh like similar uh things in mutt to basically hide the uh sidebar but uh yeah i didn't know about the the tmux one either i always feel like there's all these shortcuts in like vim and tmux and stuff that uh i never know about and then i always forget to use them in the moment because it's like you have to teach your fingers to do that right naturally yeah i think uh, a little bit at a time is is always good like <clears throat> you know you start using the sidebar or like for me i've been using tmux for i don't know what four or five years now maybe more and i just started using split panes um and i liked doing that and i found the advantage of it and then once you start using split panes then you have to you know, figure out the copy-paste issue. So they all kind of build on one another. But if you start on day one and say, okay, just control B this, create a new one, control B Z, zooms, control B this, does that, and you're like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Mm -hmm. I do like to stay on the keyboard, though, as opposed to double-clicking things with the mouse yeah. and scrolling. I am very keyboard-driven when it comes to that kind of thing. I always found it hard to uh, use the track point on the ThinkPads to do like precise movements yeah uh so i guess i've kind of grown to prefer a trackpad for that kind of stuff mm -hmm. well you can you can do more with a trackpad right you can zoom you can scroll you can you know all sorts of stuff yeah i think the thing i use most about a trackpad is to just quickly two finger scroll up and down um yeah like using long web pages with a trackpad is or a track point is like so frustrating to have to you know mouse all the way to the corner and uh scroll up and down and then scroll or move your cursor back i guess that's why they had that thing where you'd like i think it was like you click all three buttons or something like that and it puts it into that mode at least it did in windows 
maybe it was just clicking the middle button where it uh it puts the like mouse the cursor into a mode where then if you just move the cursor up and down it scrolls and then you hmm. click the button again and it takes it out of that mode i don't know oh, if it's yeah. just for windows but yeah yeah i know what you're talking about where the little the cursor changes in the screen yeah and it's got like a dot in the middle and then uh, up and down arrows on top and bottom i think yeah yeah i mean i've i've started to like really learn these particular tools uh vim being one that i'm spending a lot of time on now where like uh going to the top of the document to the bottom of the document um visual selecting a word or you know be having the cursor on a word and uh highlighting all the instances of it and that kind of thing um i think knowing those kind of things are really really important and also the navigation too like um the navigation shortcuts in vim are something that really can get you around the file very quickly and i did like everybody else probably did when they started using vim and i was using the arrow keys mm-hmm. um you know to move the cursor around and move the cursor uh where i wanted it and then you learn very quickly uh to search and then so search becomes like your kind of thing and you're like okay that's more quick and then you learn home and end and then you start to learn the other shortcuts like you know jump a word or highlight a word or uh, insert after the next word and those types of things and that starts to become pretty powerful uh, using vim and that kind of leads me into uh, some feed or a question that someone uh, emailed us we've been talking about these vim tricks and uh, you know Herm- hermino he asked he said hey where can i find that presentation so nj huge shout out to you because uh even though you weren't too uh, having too much fun with your signing uh, party, your Vim talk is very popular. <laughs> many, many people want to see those slides, so um, we're going to get a link to those slides up for anyone who anyone who's interested. Um, I've had a few people ask me on IRC, and Hermina was asking, so uh, those are an important thing. I think people want to know how to use those editors uh, more efficiently or be more effective with them. And I, I saw a guy with uh, TextMate one time, and I was like, how does he do that? <laughs> and you could hear the, the keystrokes going into all of it, and I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, he's he's put some time into this. But uh, it was still, he was pretty effective. And uh, when I watched NJ doing the Vim stuff, there were less keystrokes, and still it seemed like magic was happening. So um, pretty impressive stuff. Um, and hopefully we can get that into your guys' hands, and you can have more fun with vim and uh be more productive with your tools yeah we'll put that in the show notes so you can find it in your uh podcast app or on garbage.fm yeah um but like that's what i was saying like when you learn a vim shortcut like you have to train your brain to to default to using that like that key stroke or key you know macro Mm -hmm. or whatever to do that rather than you know just quickly going over and like scrolling you know letter by letter Right. Holding down the arrow key or something like that. You have to like tell yourself, no, wait, stop. Remember what was that actual Mm -hmm. command and then type it out and then like try and get that muscle memory down to actually go there by default. So like for a lot of, for me, a lot of times it is just quicker just to go back to like, um, I think one thing that made me a lot faster was like, if I'm trying to scroll in a big paragraph or something, that's a long line, instead of just like holding down the L key or something to scroll over, I right. just scroll down the W or hold down the W key and it starts scrolling or moving over by words. Right. Um, 
So like something like that is quicker. But then like if you looked at it and you were like, okay, it's 30 words in or something and you just do 30 W, like it jumps right there. But then you have to like tell yourself to stop and like use the shorter keystroke, which, you know, it's hard to do sometimes. Yeah. And then you have other people who um, I was talking with a couple people on IRC and uh, I was talking about reading code in uh, CVS Web versus Vim. And they said, man, if that's the case, if it's easier on CVS Web, then, you know, you're not using your editor correctly. <laughs> and they were asking about code folding and that kind of stuff. And um, I think Vim probably even has stuff for jumping to the start of functions and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. um, that is something I definitely need to start learning. Um, you know, I've, I've, oh, and the other thing that I remember, people have very strong opinions on syntax highlighting or not. <laughs> um, and I'm curious where you fall in the syntax highlighting camp. Uh, I don't know if I've shared it before in the show notes. I can link to a screenshot of mine, but um, all of my uh, colors, if you will call it that, for like MUT and VIM and basically any other, like IRS, SI, um, everything is monochrome. Mm -hmm. So there's no colors. It's just using bold and sometimes like reverse for uh, um, highlighting stuff. So my VIM color syntax is... Uh, I don't know. How to, I don't know how to describe it. Have you seen it before? Um, I have a little bit. Yeah, I can look to my uh, my Vim RC file too, which will uh, show it. But so you don't like to be too distracted with colors. I don't like colors, but I definitely see um, the benefit in at least some type of syntax highlighting because, mm -hmm. um, if for no other reason, like uh, if you are like one parenthesis short of closing something in like a kind of complicated line, um, the whole rest of the screen will look wrong because of the syntax highlighting. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know that really otherwise, unless you were sitting there counting them all. Um, so it is really helpful for that, but I don't really go too crazy with, uh, highlighting different things. Well, I, I like colors. Um, I use this, uh, Malachi, Maloki, I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, color scheme. And I use the dark version. I do like um, light text on a dark background. And um, I don't think there's too much going on in the way of like syntax highlighting, but you do see like uh, colors here and there. So, I mean, maybe I'm, I don't know. I know some people like it really bright and really intrusive. I think that this is probably not so much. Um, and the other thing that I do with mine is in Go at least, um, I haven't run Go FMT uh, when I save the file so that it kind of catches if I'm missing uh, parentheses or have syntax errors and things like that because it'll catch those types of things and then it'll say, hey, you have an error here in your code. And then it also kind of like does the, the formatting mm -hmm. so that you have, um, like OpenBSD adheres to certain style standards. And this Go FMT will apply the idiomatic Go styling standards to the code that you save so you don't have people who complain about like, well, I put my parens at the end of the line and I put my parens at the next line and or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Um, and this, uh, you know, that kind of like makes that more consistent and you don't have to worry about tabbing and indenting and all that kind of stuff. It does it as you save the file and makes it consistent. And uh, I, when I work with more and more developers 
I like that more and more because the style stays consistent and they don't have to think about it when they write the code and I don't have to think about it when I read their code. <laughs> so it works out pretty well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see, I, I like the reverse. I use a, I use black text on a white background. Uh-huh. Um, I think I just started using it because it was the default Xterm setup in OpenBSD. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like it now because I've tried to go to um, light text on a black background. Mm-hmm. And I just can't. And I think the reason, at least for me, is that uh, I do a lot of web development stuff. And pretty much every web website that I would be working on or looking at has a light background. And right. I would find that constantly switching f- like virtual desktops from one that has editors with um, a dark background and light text and then switching over to Firefox, which has... Uh, white background and dark text it would screw with my eyes yep. so for me it's just easier to keep a uh, a light background in my uh, terminal and um, mine's actually kind of like a really light gray it's not really white and the text is kind of an off black it's not like a actual black yeah yeah actual white and actual actual black are really almost a harsh contrast yeah. And I do the same thing. I soften my dark and my light um, with my background and my foreground. So it, it's amazing the things that you spend time on, like that you think about and you worry about. When you write code for so long, you think about the shortcuts in the editors. You think about how the the syntax highlighting works and doesn't work. You think about the colors and what works for you. And, um, and really, you know, that's one of those things where you can't say, like, this one is definitively better than the other. It's really, you know, you have to do what suits you and you have to do what doesn't drive you crazy because um, when you do that for like nine hours a day, um, it's something that can really affect you. And um, this is an odd analogy or an, an odd comparison, but I got a bike fitting a few years ago and the guy said, you know, you're on this bike several hours at a time. And he said, if you were at work for nine hours a day and somebody had their finger just resting on your arm... <laughs> Nine hours later, you'd be going crazy. And, um, and I think this, you know, the similar thing is true when you're looking at code, when you're trying to read a screen, when you're trying to, uh, navigate, when you're trying to do something for any extended period of time, those minute things turn into, uh, big things. Um, we, you know, you can also compare it to like repetitive stress, you know, oh, that's not a big deal. It's just a keyboard key press. Well, what happens when you cut the key press um, action by a certain duration, uh, action by a certain measurement, or the uh, pressure by a quarter, or whatever? It's it's a lot different, especially when you do it tens of thousands of times. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Getting your environment set up and navigating it, and I think our users have kind of um, confirmed that by the feedback that we got and the interest that we got. Yeah, I mean, I'm I constantly like tweak my, uh, my setup. You know, I'll try, I'll see something in a screenshot or something. I'll be like, oh, that looks neat. Like, I wonder if that's helpful. You know, I'll try it out for a week and be like, nope, that was not helpful. <laughs> just oh. go back to it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you reminded me of something. Um, we were talking several episodes ago about. Um, I went for a while without using uh, merge in uh, Mercurial, and I did all the code merging by hand. And that was awful, and it made me appreciate how well merging in uh, Mercurial and uh, Git worked. 
And then I found something even more interesting. I found a configuration file. Um, it was a recommendation. I think it was Darren Chandler or someone else on IRC. Great guy. He he just knows so many things about so much stuff, and he offers up some advice. And sometimes you it doesn't always um, seem obvious what he's talking about. And then you try it out a little later on, you're like, this is what he was driving at. This makes so much more sense now. So um, anyway, what it does is it shows you, um, on your merge, it shows you the ancestor that both versions came from. It shows you the, um, the version that you have, the other version that you're merging with, and then in the bottom it shows the merged version. So you have four panes. Uh, there's three across the top and there's one across the bottom. If this sounds familiar, awesome. I'm glad you found the Holy Grail, but I didn't. And, uh, and what I found was, um, I merged, I ran a merge against a file. Mercurial did a good job with the stuff that it merged. Where it didn't, it highlighted it and showed me, and it was very obvious, and I could jump to the window and say, yep, this one pulls in, that one pulls in from over here, and voila, it's perfect, and you could see what the result was. And I don't think merging has ever worked better for me. Um, and it was, I think, maybe only one or two lines in my HGRC file, and it was perfect, and I've been really happy with it. I've been flying through merges ever since, and they make so much more sense to me now. And I don't know that it was necessarily just the way I think or um, anything like that, because I gave the same config to another one of the developers at work, and he was having frustrating uh, frustration merging code and I gave it to him and five minutes later he had everything merged perfectly so I think it's just li like literally like the best way to merge stuff so yeah made my life a lot easier nice yeah so I guess that is uh, is that all the feedback or no we had a question how do you securely share credentials across machines mm -hmm. uh, I will confess to using something that doesn't work in OpenBSD at all uh, I use one password on my Mac and my phone, um, on my iOS and Android phones, and it syncs through uh, Dropbox. Okay. So I have um, I store all of my passwords and credit card numbers and all that jazz in uh, in one password, and their uh, their iOS app is very nice. Their Android app is not that great, um, but it works. And uh, so yeah, um, and then. The app, like when you save it to Dropbox, uh, as in addition to like all the raw files that it writes there, um, so that the apps can sync from it, it also dumps out an HTML file, which has a JavaScript interface to the password data. So all of the password stuff is encrypted in uh, like you know a huge chunk of JavaScript in a single HTML file. Uh -huh. And then you can just access that HTML file through Dropbox in any web browser. And then um, you can access all of your passwords and stuff through that HTML file. So when I need stuff on OpenBSD, I usually just go to that uh, URL that I have bookmarked. And um, I can you know quickly log in and look up a password and uh, copy and paste it or whatever. But it's nice because it's like, you know, it's not actually hosted anywhere. It's just a file that happens to be on Dropbox. Um, but it doesn't, it's not like that, uh, is it LastPass that's like actually hosted somewhere? 
Right. Um, which scares the hell out of me. Yeah, I mean, it's really no different than having um, your credit cards in your wallet. I mean, yeah. Um, so I do something a little bit different. Um, I use uh, multi-factor authentication for SSH um, into my machines. And so there's two pieces to this. The first is that, one, I don't really share the credentials across machines. Um, okay, let me back up here. So uh, when I authenticate over SSH, I use um, my YubiKey. And so the YubiKey has one-time password generation. You generate a private key a user and a user ID. And login YubiKey generates um, like an incrementer or a counter on the machine. And every time you authenticate, it increments that counter. Um, and so with SSH, I use a public key and I use the, the YubiKey. So um, I copy the YubiKey directory um, with the user ID and the private key um, to each machine that I authenticate to. And with SSH, I generate, um, um, you know, just a, the, I just share the public key to whatever servers that I'm going to authenticate against. And then I modify my login conf to allow public key, uh, YubiKey as the authentication mechanism for a certain user. And then, of course, there's um, there's backups in the event that I would lose my YubiKey uh, that work with passwords. And then uh, as far as passwords go, one of the things that um, you can do, and I don't know if this is like the best thing to do or not, is you can grab the row in your password file. So for instance, if you have 20 users in there and you want to um, have the same login credential and you're using passwords, I don't recommend that for SSH, but if you are, uh, you can copy those rows out of the password file and, um, you know, put them on the other server. Um, hopefully you don't have, like, you know, the user ID numbers conflict and stuff like that. You'd have to check that kind of stuff. But that's one way of distributing um, the users across multiple machines. But I think, really, there's not a, a really good universal way to do distributed... Um, authentication across multiple machines and that's one of the things that I uh, run into with my YubiKey is that the YubiKey is designed to have a central authentication server um, that keeps track of that counter such that if I log in on one machine uh, that login can be replayed on another machine until I've successfully logged into the other machine as well so it's a little bit broken and I would really like to see um, well, I won't talk about it until it's done, but there's there's some things in the work that might be uh, worked on. Maybe we can get them working that would allow a more centralized authentication for SSH, but it's probably a long ways off. Yeah. What about just like the regular OTP stuff where you can uh, use any, like the Google Authenticator or any other standard OTP app uh, like we use to log into the garbage uh, CMS? Um because then that way it's based on time, so you can't replay anything older than like, I don't know, ten seconds or something. Yeah, you can do that. And then uh, you can that way because like I have a the YubiKey, what is it, Nano, the one that like mm. just barely sticks out of the USB port, mm -hmm. and um, I can't really use it with my servers because 
Like I want to be able, I want that extra security, but there's been too many times where I've had to pop into a server from my iPhone because I've been out somewhere and something's gone down and I can't wait, you know, a few hours to get back home to a laptop. Um, so I can, you know, I have my SSH or I have an SSH key on my phone in the SSH app that I use. Um, and then that key is on the servers that I will allow myself to log into remotely, um, without my laptop. Uh, but I can't really use the, like a, something like the YubiKey because I won't have it on me all the time. And like right now I have, uh, four different laptops on my desk. So, um, I'd have to like have a YubiKey for every one of them. Well, I use the same YubiKey for multiple machines, which is what I just said isn't a very smart thing to do. So have fun replaying uh, the one-time passwords on my servers. Uh, uh, but but the other thing that I do is um, I have the Neo with the um, near-field communication. Mm. So on my Android phone, I'll like scan it, um, and it does send the one-time password into um, my SSH client, and it generally just works. Um, but you know, then you have to spend another 45 or $50 on another key, you know, and they're changing them all the time and adding new features. And they, I don't know, I've spent a lot of things in YubiKey and I'm not really advocating for them, but it's just what I do. So it's always an option, I suppose. But because I ran into the same thing where I was like, oh, well, what if I needed to use it for my phone? And that's what I wound up doing. I do think, um, uh, as far as credentials go, you want to be using SSH, um, public key, you probably want to be doing, if you're taking free advice from me, you probably want to be doing the 25519 curves, and you probably don't want to be using passwords, and you probably want to be doing some sort of multi-factor if you can, whether it be, um, what is it, uh, what you just talked about with the um, single-use passwords like from Google Authenticator or whatever, or mm-hmm. some other mechanism. YubiKeys probably are pretty decent but again you heard about the pitfalls so you know if you if you don't have um, near field communication or if you're not comfortable with that um, or if you are a little nervous about having replay attacks um, because you're only using the YubiKey then yeah that's a thing something to consider so anyway or, yeah. or if you're worried about some idiot breaking the hit layer in your operating system that makes your YubiKey not work <laughs> yeah well um, uh, yeah, so how does the hid layer, uh, so the YubiKey that I'm talking about is just shows up as a keyboard though, right? Yeah. Um, but then they, they have their other one with their U2F. That's the one you're talking about, right? Where it's, uh, it can get a request from the operating system. It says, Hey, what site are you? And it says, Oh, here's the certificate or whatever. And it generates the yeah, I think key. that's what like Chrome is trying to talk to, which yeah. Segfaults or something like that. Last yep. I heard. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to mess with all of that, and I don't really want my web browser talking to a USB device or having direct access to a hardware device. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't. <laughs> I don't either. I mean, the idea sounded good because with with YubiKeys, you know, you can you can track the token across multiple sites because you the 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 encrypted single-use password is prefixed with your user ID. So if you used it for your Google account and your bank and your this and that and the other thing, um, someone can track that. So, yeah. 
they solved that with public key and then broke the whole thing <laughs> um, by having your browser be able to talk to a USB device, which is scary stuff. Yeah. Um, and as far as, I guess, sharing other programs to share credentials, if you're, if you, uh, have multiple users that need the same credentials, like to log into a support site or something like that, um, I think there's a command, uh, called pass, uh, and it uses like GPG to basically encrypt a whole bunch of little files that each have a password in them. And, uh, you can just like run the pass command and it shows you like a directory tree kind of of all the credentials that you can store um but yeah i've been spoiled by one password because it integrates really well with the uh, web browsers on os x at least or now mac os mm-hmm. uh you just hit like command backslash and it um will like autofill the form and all that stuff yeah all right so i guess that's it for user feedback well, somebody wants you to finish commit ID. Yeah, well, if candy and nuts and... What, how's that line go? <laughs> candy and nuts were something and butts. Maybes and butts. I don't know what the line is. Yeah, I want myself to finish it too, but I don't have the time or the resources to finish it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but I would like to finish that too because... I've done a lot of the preliminary stuff already to get it kind of there, and the rest is basically just all the manual stuff of reviewing every single commit and saying, like, oh, yeah, this one actually joins the one that's four above it or something like that. Mm-hmm. So now are we done with user feedback? Yeah, we really are. <laughs> and uh, uh, speaking of you finishing stuff, you had a pretty cool week working on uh, Chromebook stuff. Do you want to give an update on that? Uh, I don't know if I'd call it cool. It's been very frustrating, but, um, so I got the, uh, I don't know where we left off in the last week's show, but, um, the core boot frame buffer and the backlit or keyboard backlight, uh, drivers are in Mm -hmm. and someone that I've been corresponding with back and forth about, um, getting OpenBSD working on the Chromebook pixel um, I had been sending him these diffs along the way to test and I kind of, um, didn't want to wait for him to reply, but, um, he eventually upgraded and, or updated his tree and found out that they broke on his machine. So like with the core boot frame buffer stuff in, um, when he boots X, he gets like a corrupted display and he can't, uh, manipulate certain windows. And I was like, that's really weird. I don't understand how my driver would affect that. So I had him like disable it in a particular way, and he said that it fixes it. So that's very suspect. And then the uh, keyboard backlight driver, when he boots with that enabled, the whole kernel just hangs. Um, And I was like, okay, so that's 0 for 2. Uh, As far as, uh, you know, working on more than one Chromebook. So um, I got a Chromebook Pixel because I don't know why. Uh, and it That's came, how you do things. Yeah, you just go out and buy it and then... I don't how know, would you we, test it any other way? I mean, there's well, no other way to test. Yeah, I mean, I've been sending him patches, but it's like, all right, this is taking forever, and if I'm going to make the 6.0 release, I need to know like if I need to disable the driver or get a fix in or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I got it today and it's kind of interesting to see the comparison between the Chromebook Pixel and the HP Chromebook 13 um, as far as like build quality and all that. But uh, yeah, so I was able to reproduce the uh, kernel hang and it's when it tries to, um, it calls an ACPI method or a, yeah, an ACPI method to write the new or to fetch the keyboard backlight value from mm-hmm. the uh, mat the magic of ACPI, and so that actually ends up tracing back to a function that manipulates the um, embedded controller, and that's all that I get. It just hangs. So I'm guessing that there's something broken on this device that uh, it's like it hasn't initialized the embedded controller properly or something um, before it tries to do this device. And it's only apparently on the Chromebook Pixel. Um, and then I was thinking back to those other Goog 999 devices or whatever. Yeah. And one of them is for the embedded controller. So I may need to look at that and see what that Linux driver actually does and see if we need to duplicate it on OpenBSD. Uh, so, uh, but as far as the just corrupted X thing, I can't reproduce it. So... I'm not sure what his deal is. If he's he has like old drivers lying around or something, I don't know. But that's old why I was asking of X you. Or something. Yeah, that's or an xorg.conf or something that's conflicting. But that's why I was asking you about your ThinkPad and whether you when you boot X, if it shows Intel DRM lines, uh-huh. because on the Chromebook Pixel it shows mode set which is using the Xorg mode setting driver and not yeah. the Intel DRM driver or the, you know, Xorg Intel driver, mm-hmm. which is weird. And then I looked on my Samsung and it's doing the same thing. Um, and I don't know how long that's been happening, but if, cause, um, both of these, the Chromebook pixel has Intel DRM on it, so it should be using the Xorg Intel driver. Um, so I need to figure out why it's not loading the Intel driver, and maybe that's the source of the corruption. I don't really know, but uh, so now I'm working on that. But the past few days I've been uh, working on the trackpad driver for the HP Chromebook. Yeah. Because I had to split my my uh, dear friend DWIIC, the driver that took me forever to write for my Samsung laptop that supports the synopsis designware i2c controller and apparently that controller is on a whole bunch of machines more than just my samsung and uh the trackpad on the hp is behind one of those controllers so but it attaches over pci so i had to split my dwiic driver into separate acpi and pci attachments so that part is working but now when i'm trying to talk to the actual trackpad um, I can send it like a command to reset the device and then the command that actually like has to fetch, um, like a whole blob of binary data from it, uh, just comes back and says that there's no data there, which I don't really understand why, because I tested on Linux and I'm doing like, you know, um, every single register that's written to and read from, I'm dumping it out into the kernel log mm-hmm. and on both Linux and OpenBSD and uh, every single command is the same on both and there's you know probably hundreds of commands um, and I don't understand why it's different when it boots on OpenBSD and the 
uh, aggravating part is that it actually worked like twice on OpenBSD, and I have the old varlog messages files to prove it, but I booted like twice and it got farther and it would, you know, probe the device and the device would return a whole bunch of data. And then something broke and I don't know why, because I haven't been keeping, um, like a local Git tree, like we were talking Mm -hmm. about in a previous episode Yep. of all my like incremental changes. So I've just been like playing with this driver in the, you know, in my source tree and I've been making little one line changes to it and then recompiling and then uh, rebooting. And I don't know what I did those two times and I can't get back to that. And I've tried everything I could possibly think of that would affect that as far as like timing, you know, how long the delays are between certain read things. I've like tried removing the delays. I've tried making them really high. I've tried using a different um, backend device to implement the delay. I've tried changing the order of things. I've tried um, like today when I was working on it, because I've been basically doing this like nonstop for the past few days. Um, I thought it was like, like, so you have a PCI device and then you do like PCI map. uh, I can't even remember now. You're basically (laughs) like mapping a, a memory space for the PCI device. And then you just write to that memory location and it writes to the, to the PCI device, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you do, if you map the device a certain way, if you do a whole bunch of reads or writes in an, in order, uh, they might get re like reordered by the time they actually get to the PCI device. So you have to, um, you have to map the space a particular way to disable that because most of the time you don't want that. Um, But it was doing that by default, so I don't know why that would come into play. And then I thought, like, well, maybe those reads and writes aren't actually getting to the device, so you need to do, like, a... uh, uh, You need to do, like, a memory barrier call, Uh which basically, like, flushes that I.O. And so you'd call this function after, like, doing a bus space write or read, and I tried that and it didn't work. And, uh, I even went into the, cause I've been like booting Linux, um, and then recompiling a Linux kernel with some changes and then seeing how that affects it. So I actually like changed the Linux driver for this thing to do a, uh, to support, uh, what am I trying to say without using, cause so in OpenBSD when it boots, it can't use interrupts because the whole kernel is booting and you don't have interrupts yet. So you have to basically probe the device and like, or you have to pull it. That's what I was trying to say. So yeah, the the device or the driver that I wrote initially has to have, has to support interrupts and a polling mode so that when it's auto configuring early, uh, like when the kernel's coming up, it has to use polling mode because interrupts don't work yet. But then later when the whole system is booted, you don't want to use polling because it's going to be too slow. So you have to implement the interrupt, uh, method as well with a Linux driver only supports the interrupt method because they do interrupts very early in the kernel. So every device driver that comes up while it's booting, um, gets to work with interrupts. Hmm. So to make them similar, I actually implemented a polling mode in the Linux kernel driver. Um, and I was actually thinking about upstreaming that change. That would be kind of funny, but, um, so now it's using polling. So the like per, uh, 
per register reads and writes should be identical because it's not uh, using interrupts on Linux either. So now they're even closer together on OpenBSD and Linux, and it's still not working on OpenBSD, and it's very frustrating. That's a bummer, man. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, I know exactly what you mean, though. You you have something working, and it, like, works a little bit. You're like, okay, man, this is cool. All I have to do is change this one thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, how come it doesn't work? All I changed was that one thing. And uh, you try and go back, and you can't go back, and you're like, <laughs> you can't control Z back to that place. And it makes for a little bit of a heartache. Yeah. So, uh, and I can't even, like like guess at what I could have possibly changed in the span of, you know, tiny changes between reboots that would have made it work that one time. And I'm thinking that it wasn't anything that I actually changed. It was just like the particular hardware initialization state of the device when OpenBSD yeah. booted. So I don't know, I'm kind of getting very frustrated with it. So I was happy to uh, look at the Chromebook Pixel and try and fix those bugs um, before yeah. I have to go back and figure out why this isn't working. But the good news is that um, this particular trackpad device on the HP Chromebook supports mm-hmm. uh, two modes. It supports absolute mode, which is like um, how you get all of the different finger data separately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also supports um, the Windows-compatible uh, HID mode, which is huh. the drivers that I had to write for the Samsung so those are already in there. So if I can just get this one little piece working, I should be able to get the trackpad working in that Windows mode, and then it would use the iHidDev and iMS drivers that I wrote. Yeah. So I won't actually have to write a uh, driver to do all of the like, um, you know, proprietary commands that this particular trackpad supports. And then it will at least work for us while I uh, work out the rest of the details with the driver that's encouraging though i mean that that's yeah. really good news um do you mind if i go back so you were talking about uh map mapping the uh memory space now you were talking about the ordering changing is that something uh that's set up when you map the memory or is that something that's set up when you write the memory that you have to say whether to uh, keep it ordered or you don't care about the order how does that work uh, so when you first set up a device and you do like a PCI map reg map, uh, there's ah. flags you can pass to it. Yep. And if you pass like, um, oh, what are the flags? There's some flags you can parse, you can pass to it that basically says you don't care about the order of stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, that was actually a bug that Mark, uh, fixed with the DWIAC driver when I first imported it. Cause I had just copied that those flags from some other driver that uh, was not appropriate. So the flags should be zero So because the DWIAC device cares about the order of those things. Right. So I'm pretty sure that the order is correct now, but I don't know that that in- actually enforces um, like it flushing the data because what, I'm, what the DWIAC driver has to do to read data from the device is it basically says... Um, okay, I'm sending you a command, I'm writing it to these registers, and then I'm going to read the data register, and I'm going to read it like 30 times in a row. And then each time I read it, there needs to be a new piece of data there. Hmm. But but then every time it reads it, it gets back zero, so obviously it's not working. Yeah. So since, it has, since it's basically reading the same register over and over again, um, there might be something in the way there that is like 
optimizing that out of the way and saying like, oh, you're just reading the same memory over and over again. So that's what that um, barrier command does is you stick right. that in between each read or write. And then that basically like tells the CPU to flush um, something. And then so that the next time you go to read or write that data, it actually does something and not just like optimizes it away. The way that we're doing it on OpenBSD with like bus space read or bus space write, mm-hmm. um, as far as I know, if you have the the memory thing mapped with like the flag set to zero, uh, you shouldn't need any of that barrier stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of getting over my head because now it's into like CPU caching and stuff. <laughs> And I just don't really understand it. And, uh, it's frustrating, like not knowing where to go or like how to figure this out. Yeah. Well, I know a guy who knows that stuff pretty well (laughs) (laughs) and he loiters out on IRC. So maybe we could, he might offer up something, um, pretty good, um, amount of time spent. How many kernels have you built to get this far? It's, I'm literally like making a two line change and then recompiling, rebooting. And I've probably done that like, I don't know, a hundred times. Yep. So it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of recompiling and it's a lot of uh, incrementing. And every time you blow away that source directory, that counter goes away. But yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, Patrick, he sent me a kernel one time or sent me a D message one time and I looked. And I'm reading through the D message and I'm like, oh man, all this stuff works. That's fantastic. And when you look at the n- number of build that it's on, it was on something like 1300. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I think people really underestimate the amount of time and effort that goes into this stuff. So I think that's, that's a cool thing to see. So if you guys are out there playing with hardware, um, and it makes you question your abilities, just, uh, turn that around and say hardware is horrible and it's buggy and they have awful hardware. That's what I think you should. <laughs> yeah. So like since July 1st, the, uh, cause all the, um, kernel messages are stored in syslog. Mm-hmm. So in the messages files since July 1st, there are 126 boots. So that's how many times I've had to, uh, try something in, Reboot it, and that's that doesn't count all the times that I've booted to uh, my Linux micro SD card to uh, try something and see what it's doing. So yeah, that's what I've been doing the past few weeks, and now I'm ready to uh, pull my hair out. But uh, hopefully, I'll figure it out soon, and then we can have a mouse. Um, how's uh, how's the SDHC stuff coming? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, it's pretty much the same place. Uh, okay, so. I've done quite a bit of work on it, and I've been really looking at um, the Linux driver for inspiration. And one of the first things I found was that they have like an entire architecture for um, handling quirks um, in the hardware. And so basically their data structure has a placeholder for quirks for particular hardware. And then when they define the hardware, they um, like you pass in a list of quirks. And in addition to the initial state of quirks, there is a secondary uh, state of quirks that they pass on in there. And, um, you know, it, it, so for this particular Intel hardware, I want to say it's SPT is the, um, is the family. 
and you look at the diff and you're like, oh, it's just this. Well, unfortunately, our uh, SDHC and SDMMC doesn't have any kind of like facility for quirks. And so initially I tried just setting those couple flags manually and then I booted it up and I got no different results. And then I realized that um, I was setting the wrong flags and I looked back in the Linux driver again to reference like what was going on there. And I realized I had completely the I completely misread and I was setting the wrong quirks for the hardware and I thought oh great this is going to work and so um, I went to go back and update the quirks again and then I realized that I was um, setting them in the completely wrong part in the driver uh, so where I was was you know it, it was a complete wash anyway and then the other thing that I did before any of that was I found this um, this other block of code and I don't even remember what it was uh, when I was reading another driver and um, I was like oh yes of course I have to do that I don't I don't remember what it was so this is gonna be uh, pretty vague but I found this entire thing that it needed to happen and I realized that um, we weren't even that close like <laughs> it, the hardware needed to attach before any of this other stuff could happen and I was like oh geez well I'm not attaching properly so that's when I went back and I did the quirks and I started looking at what needs to be set so I'm still playing around with that um, and I'm still trying to um, hack those changes in there to see if they do indeed fix things and then um, when I figure out where those need to be I have to come up with some sort of way to implement that because um, when you read the documentation there's like um, there's so many different little variables that you need to account for that you almost have to have a framework like this and um, so we're probably going to need to have something similar to that um, and I'm hoping that we don't need to have two different layers of quirks supported mm -hmm. but uh, yeah that's essentially what we have to do for for the Intel SPT I think there was um, some sort of no end of message indicator was sent for one particular thing and uh, I don't remember what the other one was. And then there was like four or five flags, uh, additional flags set for something else. And um, yeah, so I have to figure out how to how to wedge those things in there and make them work. And then once I make them work, we need to add the additional um, kind of scaffolding to support those types of, you know, attachment quirks. Yeah. Um, are you doing this off like reading the Linux driver code or actually booting Linux? I'm reading the code. Um, I, I asked Patrick, I was like, Hey, <laughs> you know, you know how to do this stuff. And he's like, yeah. And then he pointed me at the, um, at some of the Linux quirks. And then that's why I wound up there in the first place. And then I realized that I needed to be looking at a, a different, um, set of code and once I found that, I started to look at the uh, change log from one of the employees at Intel. He'd sent changes to um, like a code review spot, and he said, "Hey, here, this will add support for whatever." And uh, I was looking at all the changes that they had to put into place to do that, and then reading the driver to see what they're doing with those particular flags and all that stuff was the more enlightening piece of that whole detail. So, yeah. Yeah, the nice thing about these Chromebooks with the micro SD slot is that it's easy to flip between a 
OpenBSD install on a Linux mm-hmm. distro. I uh, set one up and installed Arch Linux on it and was um, having some uh, fun, I guess you will, trying to install <laughs> Arch Linux. It's so stupid and yep. uh, manual. Like, why is it everything manual? Like, there's no automated anything. It's just, nope. it's dumb. Um, but anyway, so I got it uh, basically just installed so that it just boots to a console. And um, like I was saying with the DWI stuff, like or DWIIC stuff, um, I at least the way that I like to work is kind of go backwards. So I like I would make the SDHC driver or whatever it is on Linux dump out, like print um, each, like, you know, register that it's writing or reading to. Mm-hmm. And then look at what it's doing on OpenBSD and then see where they differ and then kind of work backwards from there and say like, well, why is it writing this particular value? Oh, it's yeah. because there's this quirk set. Oh, like, why is this quirk set on Linux? Oh, it's because of this. Um, cause you know, especially for this kind of this hardware where you don't have any documentation for it, you yeah. don't know like why anything <laughs> does what it does or why they're writing that particular value. It's just some weird random constant to find in the Linux driver and that's what they're writing to it but you have no idea like where that came from or why they're doing it so um there isn't really any it's there isn't really any way to understand it other than to just know like what it should be doing based on what it's doing in Linux where it works yeah good call on that I like that I'm gonna have to give that a shot the only problem with that is you have to start building Linux kernels too yeah, so I got that down too. Um, in uh, so like Arch, like to build an actual Linux kernel and boot it is such a pain in the ass because you have to recompile the whole thing. Then you have to build like the um, RAM disk. BZ image, yeah. Yeah, so you like build the BZ image of the statically, you know, you know the the kernel with all the core stuff in it. But there's still hundreds of modules that it built because the kernel can't be that big, so it has to still use modules for everything. So you have to have a matching kernel, a matching set of modules, and then you have to build the RAM disk image, and then you have to like update uh, Grub or whatever, Grub, Grub. Yep. Um, but if you're doing like what I'm doing, where you're just making a few changes and then you want to like boot that, you actually don't have to do all those steps. So like the instructions that it said to do on the Arch Linux wiki were like way overboard for what you actually need to do. So when I make a change now in the Linux um, directory, I just type make uh, that goes through and builds the all the updated modules in the kernel. But in mm-hmm. my case, like there's only one changed file, so it, it runs relatively qu- quickly. And then you just do make modules underscore install, and then that um, installs that new module into the slash lib slash modules whatever directory. Yep, and then you even don't need to reboot. You can just um, insmod the yeah, you can new do module. RM mod and then like mod probe dash a or whatever. Um, yep. But in, sometimes in my case, it's just easier to reboot. So the whole process is only like three commands um, to tr- you know recompile and then reboot and load the new kernel, and it only takes like I don't know thirty seconds, forty five seconds, something like that. So yeah. it's not terrible, um, but. Obviously, it's much faster on OpenBSD. Yeah. Hey, um, <laughs> speaking of being much faster in OpenBSD, there was some fun things that happened this week um, in, in the around the scheduler. And um, 
uh, MPI was, uh, he sent out a couple diffs, and they were to remove the cues around, um, like CPU cues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's like, hey, look, I can play a video in, in Firefox and make World at the same time, and the video is playing smooth. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so um, they grabbed the diffs, and they built things, and they're like, oh, my gosh, this is great. Um, so one of the things that happened was uh, you can make Build and play Firefox, uh, play YouTube well in Firefox, but if you... Um, max out the number of CPUs. So, for instance, if you do J4 on your build and you have four CPUs, uh, YouTube will start to stutter again because you've, you know, maxed out the CPU utilization. There's no affinity for CPUs. And um, so all these people were like, oh my gosh, this is great. And then uh, MPI sent out another diff and he's like, hey, you know, I realize that there's problems with that first one, but it made me realize a couple other things. Um, mentioned CPU affinity and a couple other notes and uh, so he sent out a different diff and um, so people are testing that as well and I haven't gotten around to it yet but they're reporting the same type of stuff where they're like yeah this is great so anyway um, he's he's downplaying it he's like no this is horrible this is a work in progress and uh, it might not be correct but it's fun to see those types of changes um, happen you know like uh, when you do make build, obviously, you know, you're pegging the machine for resources. And when you run it in parallel, I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to use some CPU. It's great to see that type of work happen, um, you know, and have such an impact. I mean, when you look at the diff, I'm not trying to trivialize what he's done, but when you look at the diff, you're like, wow, you know, how do we piece this all together? And you look at the uh, amount of work that it takes to have a rather drastic impact on the scheduler. It's an it's exciting stuff. Yeah, especially like with all of the um, other stuff that he's had to do up until now to remove right. uh, locks and stuff. Yep. Um, there's like so many changes that have to happen under the hood that don't really affect much, so no one really sees any of that progress. Um, but it's all kind of prerequisites to to get to that final goal of uh, improving things in the network stack and in the scheduler and all that yep for sure yeah that scheduler and making use of your hardware i mean you you paid for the whole laptop you may as well get use of it so yeah good work mpi looking forward to seeing more great things i mean if you guys ever have a chance to buy mpi dinner or send him like some money like that dude does some awesome stuff and he is like so modest about it so uh hats off to him and buy him a beer or buy him a dinner or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the hackathon is coming up. I don't think either of us are going, right? Well, I, I said, no, I can't. And then someone told me airfare was only $700. And I was like, oh, well, oh, maybe really? I... <laughs> mm. And then I don't have time off work because I've spent it uh, doing other things. And then, then, you know, someone tried to help me out on Twitter and told me to quit my job. So that was, that was <laughs> nice of them. <laughs> uh, is that like, don't quit your day job, but they're saying that you should quit your day job? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. They don't know how bad I am at this hardware hacking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I'd like to go to the hackathon, especially now that I'm working on this stuff, but I'd probably spend the whole hackathon just sitting next to Mark being like, hey, can you figure this out for me? Yeah. 
because I remember like the issues that I was going or I was dealing with with DWIC initially. Um, I was like, man, why doesn't this thing work? And I was spending so much time on it, and it ended up being like that the interrupt pins weren't being mapped properly uh, in the kernel, and I'm like, wait, so this had nothing to do with what I'm doing? Like that was such a waste of time and aggravation. Yeah. So I feel like I'm that, at that point now, where like I'm not doing anything that's wrong. It's some other layer that I don't understand and that doesn't really come into play for this driver. It's just something that like is broken subtly. Hmm. So I feel like maybe I can't fix it on my own. I don't really know. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm hopeful that you'll get it, and uh, I'm excited to see, you know, the the knowledge, and I guess the ownership of of certain things spread out a little bit more outside of uh, JSG and Ketness and stuff. And I think those guys are great, but I like to see more people working on those areas. Yeah. Um. All right. What else? Um, so last week I was talking about the, uh, thing that I wanted to make with the Arduino to, uh, to basically communicate with my dryer and let me know when the power usage goes down. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into it and I was like, yeah, okay, I can do this. I need like this power sensor that kind of wraps around the, the actual, um, you know, power cable going to the, uh, outlet that the dryer is plugged into. And then I'd have to like write the code for the Arduino. And then I was like, well, I'm actually trying to do some other stuff, like automate the lights and on my porch going on and off at certain times. So I was going to get just like a, you know, a simple timer thing that you install in place of the light switch that, um, can turn it on and off by itself. And then I was like, well, maybe these problems are related. So I started looking into it and I kind of went down this rabbit hole of like, uh, so you remember the old X10 stuff, right? That was like yep. that early wave of like home automation back yep. when like it wasn't that popular and there were all these weird devices. So X10 is like the old standard that um, isn't really used anymore and it's kind of slow and insecure. So there's a new um, a new version of that or whatever called Z-Wave and it's basically like a new kind of standard that tons of manufacturers are using to Mm -hmm. support home automation stuff. So it basically supports like light switches, uh, door locks, thermostats, garage doors, video cameras, um, you know, light bulbs, all kinds of stuff. And they all work over this uh, Z-Wave standard. So you have all of these devices in your house and they all have to communicate uh, with some kind of centralized device um, and maybe to back up a little bit. So there's like those Philips smart hue or whatever bulbs right. where you can yep. like control them from an app. Yep. But I don't want all that, uh, basically internet like of things. internet of shit devices in my house that all of that, like that have all these crappy firmware on them that has to talk to their own proprietary app on my phone. And right. it has to like call out to, I don't know, Philips's web server every, you know, 30 seconds. Um, because it has to be controlled over the internet. Like I don't need to control anything over the internet for most of this stuff. I never leave my house. I'm not gone that much. And if I do want to control it over the internet, like I want to be in charge of that. I don't want to have to call out to a central server somewhere. I want to get, I want to tunnel in through my own firewall and then, uh, be in control of this stuff. So like, um, when I was at my old apartment, I had a security camera in my garage to watch my car. Mm -hmm. Um, because my garage was actually like two, um, 
houses or two units over from my actual apartment building. Um, so I needed to like get a long range Wi-Fi signal to the garage. But anyway, so it was basically like just a regular um, IP camera and then it would stream data over that Wi-Fi to my Synology um, NAS, which would run its own uh, surveillance app that would uh, save that stream of video and then do like motion detection and then send me pushover notifications. Mm-hmm. And I liked it because it was basically all of, it was all mine. Like it wasn't relying on a central server somewhere. It didn't rely on some company that might go out of business. It wasn't running some insecure, you know, crap. It was just all on my private wireless network. I can control it however I wanted and I could keep it from talking to the internet. So that's basically what I want to do with all of these other devices, um, which would be turning the lights on and off and doing this um, power uh, consumption monitoring. Right. So that's what got me back, or that's what got me into looking at this Z-Wave stuff. And there's also another standard called Zigbee, which is similar to Z-Wave, but I think Z-Wave is more of like a universal protocol. Um, so basically you have these wireless devices that talk this protocol and they use very little power because it's not like a full, um, Wi-Fi signal. Right. But they have to talk to like a central controller, and then that controller is what um, you can do everything through, like tell the controller to tell the light switch to turn on and off, or the power meter thing that's attached to my dryer sends its data to this controller, and then the controller can do whatever you program to do with it. And it's, you know, like there's a bunch of these controllers, and they have, you know, um, ugly web interfaces or whatever, but some of them you you can write like Python code or, you know, do whatever you want. And there's actually a bunch of them that already support pushover through push through plugins that other people have written, which is kind mm-hmm. of weird because I'd actually be like using this device and using someone else's pushover plugin. Um, so yeah, so I bought a uh, controller and a light switch and the power meter thing, and they are arriving tomorrow, so I can start playing with them. Um, and I guess I will report back on uh, how it all works. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm kind of I'm looking forward to uh, not having, you know, all this proprietary stuff that is going to stop working after a year, like, uh, you know, Nest cameras or any of those kinds of things where they change something and suddenly it stops working and you're basically sh- out of luck because, you know, none of it uses a standard protocol. And then you have to, like, have it all talking to the Internet all the time. And then, uh, so you can like, I might add some other stuff to it, like to control the garage door and, um, you know, all that other stuff. It's kind of neat that it all works on this, on a unified protocol. Yeah, that is cool. Um, you said something that struck a chord with me. The, um, the, uh, so Google bought Nest, I don't know, long story short. Anyway, uh, Google has informed us that they're no longer going to be releasing updates for the Nexus 6P and the Nexus 6. And, uh, what? that's, that's kind of no surprise. However, um, it's supposed to be October 2016 that they're going to stop sending updates for the, uh, Nexus 6, which is awful. Uh, and then I think it's something like September of 2017. Or maybe some other time, I don't know, that I'm not going to be getting updates on the Nexus 6P. Now, I've spent more than a thousand dollars on hardware. 
Wait, didn't the six P just come out with the five X? Well, I bought my six P in July of last year, so I've had it exactly a year. Er, not even that long because I had the six first, and then I upgraded to the six P. So yes, I'm. I, it's barely two years that the hardware has been around, and they're saying it's not going to be supported anymore. So. Um, I'm kind of ticked off about that, to be honest, and I don't know if they're trying to move away from that hardware to go to some other uh, Google device that they're trying to get more data from you using or whatever, but it might have been uh, my last straw with them, to be honest. Um, someone told me about it, and I was like, no, that can't be. There's no way, and then I looked it up, and uh, people are pretty ticked off about it, and there's a lot of uh, hot words being uh said across the internet about it and it looks like those dates have not fluctuated yet so maybe google will uh, i don't know maybe they'll budge when they hear enough people complaining but it's kind of junk so yeah they're, I, they're ticking off a lot of people right now i just looked it up my 5x is being end of life to, uh, september 2017 as well yep what kind of september. shit is that yeah it's horrible i mean <laughs> i had a i had a nexus 4 that i was getting updates for uh what four or five years later I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of horrible. After they went through all this, oh, look at we're going to release monthly updates for this stuff. Yeah, no. That's, uh, I don't understand that. That's like, there's these like two opposite extremes of Android where you have a brand new device like the 6P or the 5X. It runs the newest version of Android, that one that may not even be out of beta yet. And then you have the other app, the en other end of the extreme where you like you buy some new brand new phone from some Chinese company and it runs like Android five or something, mm -hmm. and then it's stuck on five forever. So you have to, as a developer, you have to support all these old versions. But like, there's nothing in the middle. Like, where is that phone that is running Android six that's going to be around for the next few years? I don't understand. Well, I'll tell you where the, the happy medium is. It's in an iPhone product. I mean, iPhone devices, I know people who are still buying uh, what iPhone 5 has been out for how many years now, and it still works, and it's still a viable device. You can text with it. You can take pictures with it. You can place calls with it. Um, yeah, I think that's where I'm leaning towards. So there's a, uh, I'm looking at an iPhone or iOS support matrix. Mm -hmm. And it says that the current version is 9, and that is supported on the iPad 2 and iPhone 4S and everything above it. The iPhone 4S came out in October 2011. So that's a 5-year-old phone that can still run the newest version of iOS. And it's getting security updates. And, you know, whoever paid $600 for that device... Um, however many years ago in 2011, they've amateurized that out across five years instead of, in my case, two. So, I wonder if it's good job. iOS 10. Oh no, all phones starting with the iPhone 5 are compatible with iOS 10. Okay, so if Android is getting cut off, or those Nexus devices are getting cut off in September 2017, that'll be iOS 10. So that's the iPhone 5, which came out in September 2012. So that's, yep. that's still pretty good. And it still works. I mean, that's the thing. My device, I complained about it a few shows ago, 
is already getting glitchy and they were like oh look we've made it more smooth and uh, Ted Unangst <laughs> posted something on Twitter and he's like ah good my new 10 core phone um, should now play animation smooth uh, compared to my 8 core phone or something ridiculous like that it was yeah I was, I was a little too upset about it to appreciate it fully at the time but uh, it's it's getting to be ridiculous and true maybe next episode we'll have to complain about phones yeah, man. Uh, well, this episode is an hour and twenty minutes already. Yeah, I know. We should we should wrap it up. Lots of ranting. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at garbagefm or on or through our website at garbage.fm. Brandon, where can how can people reach you? Can you tell that I rewrote these uh, closing lines? <laughs> I was just reading that. I was like, wait, did that change? <laughs> I wanted to make it shorter, but it ends up taking longer because I keep screwing it up. Yep. I'm on Twitter. I'm at no mercy mod with a K N O W. You're not dot, on Google dot, Plus dot. anymore. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, man, we're, we're bad at this podcast thing. Dude, it's never said the Google Plus thing. You always just had that in. I, you leave dot, dot, dot for my <laughs> ramblings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, you can find me on Google Plus, too. I'm going to go complain about Android phones on there. Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. 